So we're very happy to have spring 2018 GU Politics fellow Eugene Scott on the podcast today. Eugene Scott joined the Washington Post's The Fix in September of 2017 to report on politics of identity in the Trump era. He brings a deep expertise and a creative approach to this important subject, as well as a range of skills that are accelerating The Fix's evolution into a rich and engaging multimedia blog. He joined the post from CNN Politics, where he covered the 2016 presidential election and was a senior reporter on the website's breaking news team. He's a regular on-air contributor, providing analysis on MSNBC, CNN US, CNN International, HLN, CBS, and NPR. And uh, now he can add the GPPR Politics podcast <laughs> to, uh, to that uh, list as well. But I'll let Ben ask our first question. Yeah, so I just wanted to start um, with your first discussion section. Um, you talked about the first time you were feeling your identity as a black man. Uh, it was when you were young in a classroom and your white classmates uh, were dismissing Jesse Jackson as a presidential candidate. And I was kind of wondering that that's a very early uh, and politically charged sort of moment. I just wondered in your development as a, as a journalist and a thinker, like, when, when did you decide that you would focus on this intersection of identity and politics? That's a, a really interesting um, question. I don't recall there being like an aha moment, mm-hmm. but I do think it's important to share that. Um, so I started my journalism career 20 years ago this year. Um, I was a part of a show on BT News called mm-hmm. Teen Summit, um, which was a show that focused specifically on um, news and current events re- related to black youth in America. And so there was uh, politics and business and pop culture and all of those types of things. And so I did that um, my senior year of high school before going off to study journalism. And um, somewhere along the way, I got the message that um I should refrain from letting media organizations make me the black reporter. Mm -hmm. And what people meant um, was that if I allow uh, myself to be limited to writing stories about race, I wouldn't be able to write about other things. And also the thought was that if um, I take all the race related stories Uh, people who should be writing about race or having the opportunity to explore this new topic would never uh, get to um, do so, therefore perpetuating problems in the mainstream media with a lack of consciousness related to issues of diversity um, in in the media. And so I don't remember like there being an aha moment, but I will say there was a situation in Phoenix where... I remember, I think the Saturday before MLK Day, a mentor of mine who was also chair of the diversity committee at the time, either texted me or emailed me to let me know that even though MLK Day was Monday, there had been no story for MLK Day um, and no plans as far as he knew. And that was a big deal because if you know the history of Arizona, I believe it was the last state to um, make MLK Day legal. Um, and I think that was as recently as in like the 90s, maybe late 90s. Well, and so um, what I do remember walking away with in that moment was um, the reality that if I didn't advocate for more diverse coverage in the mainstream media, I could not trust anybody else to mm-hmm. do it. Um, diversity has not 
consistently been a top priority of decision makers in the mainstream media enough for me to feel like I can sit out of this conversation. Um, and I think um, that became incredibly clear um, during the 2016 election. Um, my first day at CNN was the day that Donald Trump announced. Um, and while he put forth his vision of America that um, emphasized people he would consider forgotten, which he would generally, I think, at best describe as people outside of the coast, people from working class, rural communities, and quote, real America. Um, he also, in that speech, called uh, Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers. Yeah. And my second day at, the, at CNN was the Charleston Massacre, uh, where white supremacists entered a black church mm -hmm. and killed, um, I think, 13, 13 people um, who were praying. Um, and so what I learned um, was that identity mattered. Just, I mean, in, in those two days alone, before I even knew where the bathroom was, we we're having thoughts and conversations about um, citizenship and immigration and race and class and faith and geography. And um, I think slowly but surely, I knew that these stories um, needed to be told and were important. Um, and I wasn't going to run away from that anymore. And I remember reading a piece by Ta-Nehisi Coates um, that was pushing back on another journalist who was saying um, something along the lines of black journalists should not uh, allow themselves to be limited to writing about race things. And Coates' argument was that people who write about issues in urban communities or uh, minority communities um, don't do so because they, you know, believe they can't do anything else. Um, but it's because they actually believe that what Harlem has to say to the world is as important as what Silicon Valley and Capitol Hill and Wall Street have to say. And that's increasingly been my conviction. And so when I found out about this opportunity at the Washington Post, I had been in conversations with them. Um, for for several years, just trying to find the right fit um, based on my skill set and interests. And they just knew they wanted to add another person to the fix, but they did not know what they wanted that person to talk about. Um, and so I proposed reporting on identity. And they loved the idea and were incredibly supportive. Um, and it's been, it's been great. And I've been able to explore identity in ways that I hadn't previously thought about it. Um, and so like today, I'm working on a article about um, perhaps the newest group, identity group to emerge in the conversation about gun violence and mass shooting is students. Yeah. And so we hear about Second Amendment folks, we hear about um, liberals, we hear about people of faith in the gods and guns space, but like now a voice is this, these, these people in this group um, who go every day to these, these spaces where uh, mass shootings appear to be increasingly common. And so just really interested in how students can influence policy and politics. So that's a long answer to <laughs> how I arrived at writing about uh, the intersection of identity and politics being important. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly look forward to that article because my next question was going to be about how identity politics plays into the gun control debate, but mm -hmm. you sort of already addressed that. But mm -hmm. um, you mentioned in there that uh, you uh, hear a little bit about the give and take between reporters. 
I was curious about who some of your favorite reporters and commentators are uh, and who you sort of see as the measured voices of reason and hope um, that are out there. Who do you like to read? If any, yeah. Um, I think Simone Sanders is a very smart mind. She is a commentator at CNN um, and the former national press secretary for uh, Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. I like Mary Catherine Hammer. She's a conservative who I believe at one point was affiliated with the Heritage Foundation, but now writes for the Federalists. Mm -hmm. I think she um, highlights ideas and issues that people on the other side of the aisle perhaps didn't, hadn't thought about when uh, criticizing or pushing back on an idea. Um, I think Clint Smith, who's an author and poet, is just incredibly insightful. Um, in terms of how he is just rethinking society as his identities change. I, I met him as a student. He's now a husband and a father and, and engaging politics and policy um, in ways that are different um, than he did, you know, five to ten years ago. And so that's been very fascinating to watch. Um, I think Matt Lewis, who's a conservative commentator for The yeah. Daily Beast, um, is, has been helpful in trying to help people within his tribe of conservatism not drink the Kool-Aid and not be so partisan. And so I think there are quite a few helpful voices out there. And I like could go on. I find myself most interested in people who force me to think differently mm -hmm. and to consider um, a perspective that I had not. I kind of pride myself on um, the size of my bubble. Like, so we all live in bubbles. I don't think that in it of itself is, you know, inherently wrong. It's unavoidable. But I, I like to think, okay, if I got to be in a bubble, I want as many people in this bubble who aren't like me as possible. Um, and so... Um, I'm, I'm always looking for people who can challenge me to think differently about something, not necessarily change my view, and sometimes they do, but who could bring an argument to the table that's not already there. Sure. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it's always interesting to see people kind of how they navigate their own identities and how they talk about identity. And um, in, in, the, in the discussion group, I'll bring it back to that a little bit, is there's been a lot of talking about how students navigate their identities, what that means to have, have an identity, have multiple identities. And I was sort of wondering how you view uh, the relationship between an individual's experience um, of their identity uh, with politics, which is sort of inevitably a collective enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of at some level uh, joins identities together. And I, I wonder how those understandings are of identity are different, how you think in important ways, or maybe if they are different. Hmm. How an individual understands their identity within uh, the political space, which is in, at, at best not individualistic. Yeah, sure. Um, they have to act collectively, right. but they have you know this very specific identity. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, that is the goal of my group more than anything else. And I was talking to, um, I had drinks last night with a friend who writes about faith and politics mm -hmm. um, for a media outlet and his partner who um, works in polling. Um, political polling and so uh, as you can see like I don't have a lot of work-life balance my <laughs> my social life is very much uh, intertwined with my professional life um, but what I um, 
was talking to them about is what I was talking to the students about. It's it's natural and understandable and and perhaps common that people go to the polls uh, supporting ideas, initiatives, and lawmakers who best represent their individual identities. Um, what I would like people to do is go to the polls, being mindful of how policies that they support impact people outside of their tribe. And so that's not to say I want you to vote differently. I don't expect that. I think that happens. I think that's rare and that's noble. But um, what I see very often is people saying, I think this idea is best for me and my family in this community, Um, which I understand. But I'm not seeing people entertain the fact that the majority of people impacted by this policy idea are not in your family or in this community. And so my hope is that people would just process um, that a bit. And I've seen success with some individuals and some people um, with that concept and less success with others, but it usually is based on just how diverse some people's own lives are, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you move in circles where everyone shares your faith and your race, your socioeconomic status, um, and other uh, factors, you probably don't think um, much about people outside of your tribe because you're not really as aware that they exist as you think, um, uh, as you say you are or you think. And so um, I just try, I just want to disrupt that a bit. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, and, and to try to try to have some empathy for other identities, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but I mean, at the same time, right, there is a disparity among how identities treat this country obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so don't you think that identity can be a powerful organizing tool uh, mm-hmm. if for groups that are oppressed, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, the, the vilifying of identity politics is sad and it's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, we see one side of the aisle who automatically thinks identity politics is always wrong. And the fact of the matter is our identities do shape how we see the world. And I think one of the things that's really fascinating about the Trump era is historically you've seen the right speak of identity politics as if it's this thing that's unique to the left, which is just not true. There's a such thing as white identity right. politics. There's a such thing as male identity politics. There's a such thing as Christian identity politics, rural voter identity politics, American identity politics, military identity politics. All of these groups are historically more likely to vote right than left. Um, And these people who are in these groups see issues based on that, right? I mean, I think military is an easy example. Mm -hmm. Um, So much of the pushback to the NFL players who are protesting racism and police violence in America comes from people who say, I have a son that served or I served and therefore I view this issue differently than you do, which is an identity perspective. Um, And I just wish people would stop pretending as if um, identity does not shape our lens. And I'm not saying it always shapes uh, your lens the same way it shapes other people in your group's lens. Um, It shouldn't. Um, There is some, you know, tension between individuality and collectivism, but the reality is your your perspective does shape your worldview. And it's kind of laughable at best, frustrating at most that people try to pretend that it does not. I think that reminds me of all the different reports that you see in the 
the mainstream newspapers about you know interviewing Trump's America and like the diner sort of setting where mm. and it really I think gets at like how the identity uh, plays into their their voting choices and and such. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that frustrates me a bit with those pieces. Um, is that it perpetuates, though, the narrative that the majority of Trump voters were white working class people mm -hmm. in rural America. Mm -hmm. And his base in particular. And his base in particular. I mean, the reality is the majority of uh, millennial men voted for Trump. The majority of college educated men did. The majority of wealthy people did. Um, uh, the majority of white people um, and so, and all of these people aren't in West Virginia. Right. I mean, and so when you see the media go, let's go talk to Trump voters. We're going to get on a plane to go to Kansas. I'm like, go a couple blocks, yeah. Yeah, you know, you uh, go across campus. Like Absolutely. you'll find people who voted for him and many of them voted for him for different reasons than the working class people in Alabama. And so um, it, it would be important and valuable to the media to understand why so many people were drawn to his message. Um, I was curious a little bit about how we're about halfway through the semester, so I was curious what you thought of your fellows' experience so far, um, something that you've learned from the students or learned from your uh, other fellows, and what you might have been surprised by. I am uh, thoroughly impressed by my student strategy team. Um, I could not do this job without them. I don't have the natural organization skills that they do. Um, or um, just eagerness. I mean, this is not a class that they're getting credit for. Um, and they have been so committed and faithful and invested in um, what I'm hoping to do and what I want them to partner with me in doing. And so that's been incredibly inspiring. Um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, they're really smart, bright, thoughtful students, which is not like breaking news or a surprise, it's Georgetown. Um, but I think the uh, jadedness and disengagement that people try to um, paint, you know, millennials and young Americans as uh, displaying just hasn't shown up here. And that's been um, really inspiring. And it's made me want to spend more time here, perhaps after my uh, fellowship is up. But I've I've so enjoyed it. It's been it's been time well spent, um, and I I so recommend this experience to other professionals considering it. Yeah, I was actually I was curious. Like, I was interested in the, the data point you had that millennial men voted for Trump mm -hmm. and the majority of. I, I didn't know that. The other groups I, I was aware of, but that's that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, I was thinking that um, this, so the freshmen this year at Georgetown, um, undergraduate freshmen, this, that was, I think, it's an arbitrary cutoff, but those are the last millennials, right? At some level, eight like, to 2000, right? So they're like 18. Okay. Do you, have you had any experience or know anything about um, uh, trends among the generation below ours? Not off the top of my head. I think I've heard them referred to as mosaics. Mm -hmm. I'm not completely sure. Um, one thing I'm very fascinated by with, uh, as you call them, these arbitrary cutoffs is how the, the, um, how once you're at the end or beginning of a generational group, 
you display some characteristics of the previous one. Mm-hmm. So, like, according to Pew, like, I'm the oldest millennial that one can be, like, 1981. Yeah. And so I have a lot of, like, Gen X mm-hmm. characteristics as well. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how differently um, this group uh, views things compared to other millennials because they are at the youngest end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, one thing we really tried to talk about, I think, in the first, uh, last week, we focused on uh, uh, the fight for millennials among the political parties and just how incredibly diverse the millennial um, generation is. And not just ethnically, but like they're grad students in New York who are millennials and like married fathers of four in Missouri who are millennials. Um, and uh, their youth shapes how they view issues and they still arrive sometimes at different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm interested in studying that more, but I've yet to see anything from this youngest group um, that uh, has been really remarkable to me in terms of how they see the world. I'm, I'm um, really interested in how they continue to engage information and yeah. what they know about the world. Um, and how that varies from other groups. Yeah, I guess the reason I asked, I was thinking about the, the student and and uh, gun issue connection mm-hmm. we were talking about. And we've seen this outpouring, and I mean, they're, they're, they're putting themselves in physical space, but it's been largely over social media. It seems mm-hmm. like it's these, it's these kids, you see these like Twitter back and forths between various, you know, conservative politicians and media figures. And yeah. These like 15-year-old kids. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I think it's really interesting. Something that I, I definitely wouldn't have had when I was there. Right? Oh, sure. I was a high school senior when Columbine happened. And I remember I went to a public school here in D.C. And we had metal detectives in 1999. And so I was shocked at the number of schools that did not have metal detectives. Mm. Um, and I remember going to church uh, and being in my youth group, I think the Wednesday after the shooting. And the kids who went to public schools in the cities were listening to kids who went to schools in the suburbs and kids who went to private schools and just how different our ideas and thoughts about safety were in our space. Um, and um, it's all fascinating. I mean, I was an education reporter for years and I was always blown away by how often I got to just walk on campuses and mm-hmm. just talk to people. Um, and no one stopped me. Yeah. And no one stopped me. And I think what's been interesting about this current most recent debate is just how much time we've had to change that. Columbine was nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And to see some school districts perhaps not make what appears to be significant changes um, in the area of public safety from, uh, you know, nearly two decades ago has been disheartening, to say the least. So... That kind of reminds me of uh, a question I like to ask. Uh, I get the chance to talk with uh, professionals and particularly journalists. Uh, I think that a lot of reporting, we get overwhelmed with the scale of all of the different issues that our country faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, increasing uh, security in schools kind of reminds me of this. Uh, when I, what do you think is a, the most plausible policy fix that might just be floating out there? And isn't really coming to fruition. Something that seems like an easy win for the country that we're not taking advantage of. And why might that be? Well, I mean, I uh, I, I just 
don't understand why some campuses aren't more secure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just don't get it. And I don't know. And I'm, I'm not a parent. And so maybe that shapes my idea of what like a school should look like. Um, and maybe there's anxiety about creating illusions of an absence of safety. Um, but I don't know why there aren't more guards. And I don't know. I don't know why people who would like to see campuses become safer jump automatically to let's arm teachers opposed to let's get security guards or let's get more police officers or let's get metal detectors or I mean in my high school in the late 90s we had to put our suitcases on a conveyor belt just like you do at the airport Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that like people never snuck anything in I mean I've heard stories I don't remember seeing anything myself but um that definitely seems like a system aimed at decreasing um, some of the problems, and, and we're not seeing that. I think one thing I am I'm interested in as well that um, would you know prove how unfoolproof policy can be uh, is I just know so many people currently whose children are in or who went themselves to private schools. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm sure that will influence and shape how people, um, what people are able to do in, in, in the area of safety, because there's, their, their jurisdiction only goes so far when you're talking about um, policy and education. Yeah. Well, so yeah. we don't want to keep you past your... Uh you're a busy person. You have an article to, to write. So. It should have been written by another, and that's not you all's fault. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to keep you too far. Um, but just to, to wrap up, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the people what you have going on in your life uh, and talk a little bit about your upcoming discussion groups when they are. Most of our listeners will probably be students. So uh, to tell people what, what you should got look out for. Yeah. yeah, what they should look out for. Yeah, um, I, uh, my group is on Wednesdays at 4 p.m. And I believe next week um, we will be talking about the myth of a post-racial America Um, with Black History Month being over and there being a lot of conversations about race and this post-Obama political climate. Um, I'm looking forward to bringing in some guests for that that I'm finalizing right now. Um, Very interested in what... um, politics and policy related to women look like moving forward mm. in the Me Too climate, um, women's march activism. Um, and so I have a group uh, session related to that moving forward. Um, and so, yeah, I am, I'm pretty excited. Uh, things change as the news change changes. And so I will try to stick as closely as possible to um, my syllabus, uh, but I certainly hope that when I don't, it is because the issue that my students and I have pivoted to is more interesting than what I thought of on my own. So. <laughs> all right. Well, Jane, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thank, Thank you all. I so it. appreciate you uh, having me. Thank, Thank you very much. much.